Welcome to Indie Game Business, where you'll learn to navigate the industry with ease. Indie Game Business is recorded live on Mixer and produced by the Powell Group. Check us out at IndieGame.Business. Now, let's start the show with your hosts, Jay Powell and me, Indie. Sign up today for the Indie Game Business newsletter. It's a weekly source of business news curated for indie dev teams. We've got discounts on all Indie Game Business events and events from all of our partners. You get a first look at the summaries and takeaways from all of our podcasts. There's exclusive opportunities for promotions and early access to new tools for development, monetization, and more. Check it out. Sign up. PowellGroupConsulting.com slash publisher dash list. What's up, everybody? I'm Indy. Uh, this is the Indie Game Business Show. That gentleman way over there, way over there, that's Mr. J. And in the middle, we have Ed Dill, uh, the CEO of Fog Studios. Dilly. Dilly. Ed Dilly. Yeah. Yeah. In- industry legend. Industry legend. And so that Fog's been around since, what, 1979? Yep. Yep. 40 years this year. There are few people in the industry that I can look at and say they've done more deals and contracts than I have. And Ed is one of them. I was He's 10. Been doing this since I wanted to get into the industry. <laughs> All it really means, Jay, is I'm just old. <laughs> Did you ever well, hear of the, of, of the company I'm, called Noofcop? They made uh, games for the VIC-20. Oh Nufa, gosh, Nufa we did. Uh, have you ever heard of Rich and Rich Imagineering, which is the first porting house that was set up? Uh-uh. We set it up in Hong Kong. It did all the Atari soft rollout to Vic Twenty and Commodore sixty four back in the day. Oh wow! So scary it's, it's, stuff. It's odd to think that there were porting houses back then. Yeah, it was the first one. Yeah, it was the very first one. Yeah. So, Ed, for the folks that don't know you, tell us a little bit about your career and what you've done and and why you are the expert that you are today. Oh, okay. The nickel version in the interest of getting to something more interesting. (laughs) Um, So uh, I I actually uh, was a paper and cardboard cutout war gamer from the time I was growing up pre-computer you know what I mean I was into games like Terrible Swift Sword which recreated the Battle of Gettysburg and Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and all that stuff you know the games that it would take you you know three or four hours to set up and you'd play for a few hours and then you'd have to break them down so the cat didn't tear them up or whatever you know and have to spend an hour marking where all the pieces were and so you could set them up again you know way down the road and finding people that were willing to wade through the rules to play with you and all that stuff it was a challenge back in the day it was a niche but then computers came along and it was like holy cow this is cool you know like there's actually an opponent that can play against me and you know my very first computer was a TI-99-4 Alpha with a cassette tape drive. 
Oh, yes. I remember the cassette tape drives. <laughs> That's how you loaded your programs. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And it only took 30 minutes to download a game hours. from your yeah, from exactly. the cassette. Yeah. So, so well, that's okay. I remember getting a, a, a what was it, a 30 megabyte hard drive thinking, this is I'll huge. never use all this space. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> but anyway, so so um it was my love of war games that started me you know into the computer world and in the early days there was um i was you know i went to the naval academy and i was a naval officer and there was a publication called computer gaming world with johnny wilson as the editor and uh, russell sipe was the publisher and they used to do a lot of historical you know, war game stuff, you know, because that was a lot of the early days, comp group and, and, and titles like that, that people were getting into. And so I was reading this stuff and I was like, who are these people that are writing these game reviews? You know, like, I, I, they don't know what they're talking about, about some of this. <laughs> so I, being, being the, the brassy dude that I am, I called Johnny up. And I said, who are these guys you've got that are writing these things? He said, well, who, who are you? You know, <laughs> and I told him who I was and I told him I wanted to write for him. And I said, you pick the game. Doesn't matter what it is. I'll write a review of it. And if you don't like it, you don't owe me nothing. You'll never hear from me again. If you like it, publish it, pay me and give me more. So while I was still on active duty, I was writing a bunch of game reviews. And then when I got out, uh, I went to, uh, I, I was already in with Arnie Katz and Bill Kunkel and Joyce Worley from Video Games and Computer Entertainment back in the day. They had done in 1978, they did the very first game review in video magazine of any kind. And so we started, you know, I, I'd written for them because I parlayed off of the CGW stuff and I'd written for them in a lot of the other magazines. And I said, well, I want to write strategy guides now when I got out. So that's actually how I ended up meeting my wife. She was the editor on my first book, which is a Sea Wolf submarine book. There's still a- Wait, 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 wait. Uh, is that for the Sea Wolf Commodore 64 game? No, it was uh, the Electronic Arts one that came after that. It was, uh, it was on PC. Oh, no, no, see what's wrong thing. I was, I was getting that in silent service mixed up. So wait, oh, yeah, I got a question. Yeah, no. when, when you wrote reviews, yeah. did you have to like mm -hmm. type it out on a typewriter and put it in an envelope and mail it? And initially, yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Sure, okay. back in the day, yeah. And because uh, we didn't have we didn't have the 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 email stuff like we have now till what ninety five right right so mm -hmm. not you even know? on the boards or anything huh just no 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 it was it was it was old school baby and uh, <clears throat> so I started writing strategy guides for Prima Publishing um, and I did uh, I did the Doom Two official guide which I'm happy to say was the very first game guide that was released day and date with software okay and uh you know we we had quite a time making that happen but my future wife and i pulled that off and i ended up getting uh i was getting a royalty of 25 cents a copy 
We ended up being published on uh, nine languages around Jeez. the world. I made it on the New York Times bestseller list with that game book. Okay. Wow. And uh, made 250 grand at 25 cents a pop. So that's that's a million copies that got out there and got actually paid in royalties, which was cool. Um, so I did 26 game books. And in the process of all of that, I met, you know, Barry Friedman, who was the original guy. He started when he started this company that I have now. It was called International Computer Group back in the day. Okay, and that sounded really sexy in the early 70s or in the late 70s, early 80s. But, you know, by the time we were doing uh, Happy Puppy in 95, okay, it sounded like somebody that made keyboards. So, you know, I was like, we got to change the name, Barry, you know. It's like, well, what are we going to... And Happy Puppy, by the way, was the first internet gaming site. We did that in in 95 and we were the number seven website in the world okay in the early days like playboy was on top of us you know and people like that <laughs> but you know we uh, we and we ended up selling that to the to the globe um but that's its own ride and story but you know uh, he said we gotta you know i said we gotta change the name and uh, he said, what do you want to change the name to? And I said, Fog Studios. And he said, why Fog Studios? I said, because we're the freaking old guys of this business at this point. You know? <laughs> and, and that's where the name came from. You know? And uh, so anyway, went, you know, from the writing side to the business side. And, you know, it's a lot like what I did as a naval officer. It's about managing talented people and helping them reach their full potential only nobody shoots at you in this business which is cool rarely so so there's your there's your nickel version so who are the I mean, way back when i started in this industry you were technically one of our competitors when i was an agent tell us who some of the companies that you've worked with some of the the deals that you've done over the years what, what are the ones that you're you're most proud of uh, I'm proud of every one of them, okay? Because it's really about putting gas in the tank and helping people, you know, raise their profiles. I'm happy to say that we, we worked with Westwood Studios back in the day. So, you know, the launch of, you know, Dune 2, Blade Runner, Command & Conquer franchise. Uh, in terms of our, our, our corporate history, we did uh, the first licensing of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, did the first Ninja Turtles game, brought it into the industry because uh, we met him when he was just, you know, showcasing his comics, right? And uh, uh, Test Drive franchise comes from us. Uh, we, we've worked on a ton of the Cabela's hunting games for Activision over the years. We've had teams that have worked on Call of Duty over the years. Uh, you know, it, it's... It goes all the way back. Uh, I, I, it's hard for me to pick individual ones out. You know, more recent history, I'm very proud of the Puzzle Quest franchise that we did. You know, and uh, I'm happy to say there's more coming, you know, in that. And you and Puzzle Quest is one of my all-time, I'll never forget this, stories. And I don't even know if, if you remember this. 
it's one of those times when I can absolutely sit down and go, I was wrong and you were right. <laughs> Growing up, I, I won't tell your wife. <laughs> she, she, she's used to that. I mean, I'm always yeah. wrong. You know? But yeah. gr- growing up, the Warlords franchise from SSG was one of my yeah. absolute core favorite franchises. I went on a college visit yeah. to, and I ended up staying with my buddy while I was there. But I didn't go to class that day, which was kind of a premonition of my real college experience. But we went and the two of us went and bought the latest, I think it was Warlords 2, and we played it in his dorm room. And, you know, the battle cry thing came out, and I was like, okay, yeah, it's still good, but it's not what it was. And then as we had transitioned our agency into a publisher, you sat down with me at, I think it was a game connection in London. And you pitched me this idea that the Warlords team that I loved and this franchise that I was just absolutely enamored with was now going to do a casual match three game. And and I was just like appalled. I was like, there's no, (laughs) there's absolutely no way. This is a, this is a crime. This absolutely should not exist. And it goes on to spawn an entire genre of, I guess what we call it, mid-core casual games. Uh, Puzzles and empires and, you know, legendary game of heroes. All those are, are derivatives of what we did. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, but at the time, I just absolutely, and I'll never forget it, because I was just sitting there, and I came out of that meeting going, I cannot believe they are doing this to this franchise. This is just <laughs> absolutely horrible. And then, you know, it does Low what it behold, does. It kicks, it does amazing. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, the funny thing about that game was, okay, your, your experience, your reaction, all right, uh, wasn't the only one, all right, that had a similar reaction. But there were other people that, you know, like, totally loved the demo, but wouldn't fund the game, okay? And it was because they couldn't model it. They didn't have any comps. You know, it was the classic real estate problem, right? There was nothing comparable to model it against. Tony Pereira, God love him, at Capcom at the time, he totally wanted this game, all right? But he couldn't get the Japanese bosses in, in, in you know, at Capcom to buy into it, right? And uh, it was funny because him and others, after they passed on the game, I'd be calling them to talk about other games, right? And they'd say, Oh, you know, we're still playing Puzzle Quest here in the office. I said, what does that tell you? You know, come on. That was six months ago. You passed on that game and you're still playing it. Well, but that, I mean, and, and that's it. I mean, and, and that kind of, yeah. you know, we can actually use that to segue into our real sure. topics for the day. Back then, you know, the publishers modeled these games and, and did all of their projections, and therefore the people like you and I who were trying to pitch these games and and you know evaluate new titles coming in did the very same thing. We all got the MPD data either legally or you know from somebody who could afford it, and went through and we would say, okay, you know, here's a game that's in the similar genre, and you know you'd have to take a swag at the publisher influence and the quality of the team and that sort of stuff. But you could 
somewhat accurately, and depending on how good you were at projecting it very accurately, predict the sales of a game and the opportunity based on comps, the same way real estate does. You know, here, there's five houses in your neighborhood that have 2,000 square feet and three bedrooms, and this is what they sold for, so here's approximately what yours is gonna sell for. It was very similar, but we MPD data doesn't, factor in that much anymore you know there's so much stuff that's online and you know with live ops and, and all of this these new monetization techniques and, and business models that you just simply can't do it that easily anymore so you know when publishers are looking at games you know what types of gates do you see them using to evaluate not only you know the game but more importantly the team behind it now i, I applaud your segue it was a Thank good segue much. english major uh, <laughs> history major <laughs> um so so the difference between you know you described the science of trying to do publishing right and there is a science to it certainly risk mitigation is one of the factors but I have to ask you a question. When you go back in the list and you you think about who were the game of the year, you know, things, which Puzzle Quest came up, ended up being game of the year in 2007, right? How many of those game of the year titles actually had something you could call as comps? Few of them. Yeah. Okay. When you look at it, because at the end of the day, all right. If I went into a room and I asked a thousand game developers, can you make Tetris? Every one of them would raise their hand because they know how to make the sprites move that way on the screen. You know what I mean? The pixels, they can manipulate the pixels. But that doesn't mean they can make a game that balances and plays and feels like Tetris, really. Okay. So, you know. We're all standing on the, shines, the shoulders of giants. We're all replicating some things that have come before us. But the number one thing that every good developer should be looking to do is to bring something new and fresh to it. Okay? That creative spark is the number one gateway that most publishers look for. I don't say all, because there are people out there that publishing is not an art, it's a business, and they're happy to get a lot of, you know, infield doubles uh -huh. and be, be thrilled with it, okay? And they're, they're, they're very risk averse. But for the most part, even in an RFP, right? If you got an RFP, you've already got the IP, and you're gonna try and figure out which team you wanna work with. The first gateway they're gonna look at is, who's got the best idea for the game? You know, what, what, what looks like it's gonna be the most fun to play, right? So the creativity is still the first gate. The second gate is, do they have the experience and the chops to execute that vision, right? Because, you know, just to use an extreme example, you, if you're a, a racing developer and you respond to an RFP for a first-person shooter game, you may have the most creative idea in the world for first-person shooter innovation in there, 
but the publisher is going to look at your team and go, this is a great idea, but this is not the right team to execute it, you know, because they don't have the background, right? There were days in the early days where everybody could be a generalist and people hopped around between genres a lot, but we're much more in an area of specialization now. And I'm not saying you have to know, you know, by your first game or second game or whatever that you want to always be a certain kind of studio. But if you've been in business five years, you should have some degree of specialization at that point. You know what I mean? So <clears throat> the third gateway, once you've got everything else the same, I got the creativity I like, the people can do it, is then the price. Now, pricing is a factor of two things. The geography of the studio, all right, which is unavoidable, right? Certain areas are more cost-effective than others, but the seniority of the team is the second piece. So some publishers can afford to pay more, all right? Most publishers will, if they love the creative and they see that it's the right team, will pay more than they might get for other bids because of those other two factors. But at the end of the day, what you're being compared against is not, you know, a team in Los Angeles being compared against a team in Mumbai, okay, in terms of apples to apples, right? Because what will happen is, are you in the right cost basis for your geography? Because they know you can't escape your geography. And if they want to work with you, like if you're in a a, a, a studio in, uh, um, let's just say, Slovakia, okay, somewhere in Eastern Europe. Well, even 10 years ago, you could command $5,500, $6,500 a man month, U.S., right? if you were a good studio, but that would have been too low for a team in LA, right? <clears throat> so you're gonna get compared against other studios in your region and what they expect from them, but you also get that bump relative to your experience level. So the more experienced the team and the less churn a team has had, the more they can command because churn is an important factor that when you get into serious due diligence, you look at because software development is a team dynamic, you know, and you can take three or four really experienced leads who haven't worked together, but they know each other in the business and they get together and they form a new studio. And every one of them has got more than 20 years of game development experience. And every one of them has been courted by Every publisher that's a, the majors, you know, the Ubisofts, the Activisions, the EAs, now they're forming a new studio. Those Ubisoft, Activision, and EAs aren't necessarily going to jump on board with them because they're going to wait and let one of the other guys do the first one and see if they can actually deliver as a team. And then they'll be thrilled to do the second one, you know? And that's just that's just the reality of our business. People know the team dynamic makes all the difference between, you know, a 70 rated game that's delivered, you know, uh, on time or slightly late and, a, and an 85 game that's, 
you know, maybe a little over budget, but who cares? It's phenomenal. You know what I mean? It's like, these are the factors that, that the publishers think about. Make sense? It's, it's one of those things too, that a lot of developers don't realize and they're shocked by it, even if they've been doing this for, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years. When you start that new studio and you've got a new project with a new team member, your track record, like you said, it's it's much less important. And I see so many developers and they're like, but between us, we've shipped like five AAA games. It's like, I know, but you haven't shipped one together. And, and that's, right. that's what they're looking for is to make sure. But it, it also goes back to, you know, what we always say when you're talking about Tetris, it's everybody has a game idea. My seven-year-old has game ideas. Some of them yeah. are actually pretty good, you know, but it's the execution. And, you know, you see, I see on Reddit all the time and on Twitter, somebody came out and stole my game idea. It's like the, the, the odds of you having an original game idea are so minute that it's not even worth discussing, but it's about going out and executing on it well, doing it right and, and being successful with it. And that's what matters more than just the idea around it. Yeah, that's why you copyright code, not not, not yeah. papers. You exactly. Know. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about geography. Is there, you know, I, I've seen over the years big swings in, in development where, you know, we did a lot of development in North America and Western Europe. And then for several years, especially with the casual market, a lot of that development went over to Eastern Europe, Russia, Southeast Asia. Aside from, you know, the simple cost in, of the matter, how else do you see geography factoring, factoring into some of these decisions that publishers are making on games and studios? Well, I think uh, the depth of the talent pool is important. You know, in other words, how easily can a developer scale if you need to scale them? Because when a publisher works with a dev, I mean, ideally, everybody wants to work towards a long-term business relationship, right? If you do work and it works well, you want to do more work with that studio rather than starting over with other people, mm -hmm. right? Unless there's a compelling reason to use a different studio, you know? But if, for example, they uh, take an easy one, Hidden Object Games. When Hidden Object Games were bigger, you didn't need to work with 50 Hidden Object Studios. You needed to work, you know, iWin and people like that needed to work with four, five, six of them and keep them on a regular flow and publishing schedule and they had all the product they need. So the only time you replace somebody is when you really needed to scale up, right? So <clears throat> I think that, that to, to get back to your root question, your root question, if you're in an area that um, doesn't have a lot of depth for talent, you know, then it's it's hard for publishers to want to invest there because it's a fluke. It's not necessarily an area that you can explore and exploit better, okay? Now, <clears throat> it's usually at a level of maturity, all right? You have some studios like, I used to represent Cauldron, okay? And Cauldron 
was the most experienced studio in Slovakia at the time. Okay, and so they had been around more than 10 years when I started working with them. Okay, and there was, they could draw from Austria and other places that were close that had a lot of talent base. You know what I mean? So they had a good block of people and they had access to more experienced people they could bring in. And Games Farm, you know, Games Farm a little farther north in Kosice isn't as easy to scale. It's up in the Tatra Mountains as maybe somebody in Bratislava. So that's an example of where geography can influence a publisher's thought process. Another thing is, what's the publisher's level of comfort in working with a studio halfway around the world? You know, so there are publishers even to this day that are based in Europe and they really only want to work with European studios because it's easy for them to hop on a plane and get over there and, you know, be in the office with the studio on short notice. Okay. And they, there might be a better cost basis for them at this point in Latin America, but they're a little hesitant to do that because it's a long way to get there. You know, same thing with uh, the teams in Australia. You know, teams in Australia have always struggled. I just got back from Australia working with Steve and the Puzzle Quest crew, you know, and it's a long run to get down there, you know. So if a publisher is the type of publisher that is less comfortable working virtually, then geography can have a factor on their decision, you know. So do you think that... You know, because, you know, that's been true for at least the, the 20, 25 years that I've been doing this. Do you think that mentality and that reality has, you know, blended with the rise of digital distribution in helping create more development hubs that didn't exist prior? Because you can go out and, you know, feasibly prove yourself and your studio without a publisher and continue to grow that talent in-house? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to talk about the in-house talent thing, all right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue off and say this is kind of a tangent, but it's an important one. <clears throat> one of the great, you know, there was a time in our industry where there is no such thing as a game development curriculum. Okay. We're still pretty much there. <laughs> well, you, you're, you're, you're going to, don't steal my thunder. Okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, there was nobody that was actually doing degrees out there. Okay. That all happened in the last 10 years, really. You know what I mean? Is that, that we had a preponderance of universities offering game development degrees of various kinds. Now, the problem with a lot of those programs is that they're taught by academians who've never actually worked in commercial software development and they don't put these kids in a position to succeed. All right. And, you know, I, I also think that, you know, without at the risk of getting political, um, there's too much cost for college period. You know what I mean? And, and I think that when it comes to young people trying to break into the games business, well, right now you're paying money to a third party 
to give you exposure, right? What if you found a game studio, you went in there and you said, look, I'm going to put my next two years into you. You don't even have to pay me, okay? I'll take care of myself with the money that I was gonna spend on college. I'll go in there and I'll do whatever you need. I'll mop the floors, I'll do QA, I'll do whatever. I just wanna learn, okay? I guarantee you that those people are gonna get integrated, learn a lot more, and become way more valuable a lot quicker than a lot of the kids that have you know, invested four years in a degree. Now, obviously, if it's about technical art or things like that, you know, maybe you need to go through that pipeline, you know, but there's a lot of, a lot of what I would call soft jobs, not programming, not heavy art load. Okay. But, you know, designers, producers, you know, all the other people that make up a game studio. Well, you know, I you think I, I think school on the ground experience. School is a lot like that. I mean, they, it gives you there's like art classes. You take art classes, but you don't like actually learn the practical skills you need to navigate the industry of being an artist. You know, so, but I really think school yeah. is just kind of like that, and and I feel that way too. I feel like school needs to give you more practical industry industry navigation skills as opposed to just the skill set of the th what you're doing because you know you can learn a bunch about what you're doing but if you don't know how to do it in in an industry there's you have to learn that as well well the and, other thing that sorry jay one more thing okay the other thing that that's important for people trying to get into this business to understand is this is all a very personal business. Okay. It's very relationship driven, extremely relationship driven, you know? And so until you're in the business, making those relationships, you're not on the path to success. And, you know, people recognize great work ethic, right? You know, does the person work really hard? Do they, do they bust their butt for whatever needs to be done? Yes. Do they do it with a good attitude? You know, are they, are they an addition to the team as opposed to a detriment to the team? They know how to work with others, play well with others, you know? All of those things, man, you build up a reputation and then people will go out of your their way to help you, all right? This business is not about if I get ahead, you lose, all right? This is the only industry that I know of where people do things like this. They openly share everything that they've learned over the years with one another. And if somebody has a problem, hey man, I'm trying to figure this thing out in unity, okay? I'm trying to do this, I'm trying to do that. We help each other all the time, you know? And it's based on who you don't help is the people that are buttheads. You know, right. so if you, you even got help your, your competition and it, yeah, you help your competition because there is no competition. You know, do you think that everybody suffered when Fortnite went out and kicked butt? No, it brought a whole bunch of new players in. Everybody's going to make more money. You know, <laughs> I mean, and that's that's the crux of, of this show. 
it's you know i've looked around and seen this for years as well and it's like yeah we'll teach you how to you know be a game designer or we'll teach you how to code or we'll teach you how to you know do art or rig or you know all of these you know technical skills but nobody teaches you know the practical this is actually how you run a studio this is how you pitch to a publisher this is how you you know distribute and market your game and you know that's one of my biggest pet peeve and i think until we get to that point where we're teaching you know systematically these skills it's not going to be a mature industry it's still going to be you know a lot of people getting out and getting frustrated and, and failing because they simply haven't been given the tools that they need to you know be successful in doing this thing that they love well you know it's not about book learning it's about experiential learning you know like we can sit here and we can jabber, but it's really about leadership. You know, it's about the old guard like us willing to take the young people under their wing and say, yes, no, you know, like you might've done better here if, you know, just it's a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, we can reach some people here, but by the way, let me just say this. My email's at dilly at fogstudios.com. Anybody who's listening to this, who has follow-on questions, wants to understand something better, just shoot me an email. You know, I'm a busy guy, but I get through my email. You know, it might take me a little bit. I might be on the road somewhere. But, you know, this, we're all about helping one another. And uh, there's no question too early, too stupid or anything like that. And, and I'm not saying I got the answer to every question, but I'll guarantee you I know people that do. I was getting ready to say, if we don't have it, we know who does. And, and yeah. that's, the, that's the beauty of it. I think that's where, I mean, Twitter's great for, you know, networking a little bit, but just with the short span of time that we've been using Discord, it's fantastic how many people we see on our server or on, you know, Heine's server or some of the other servers that, that I'm on, where people say, hey, look, I don't, I don't know how to find influencers. And then you have people that you may not realize but are extremely senior folks at other studios going hey look this is what you need to do and yeah absolutely because it is you know this is absolutely a, a industry <coughs> where it's like you said it's very relationship based you know it, it one of those that it's almost the quintessential it matters less what you know versus who you know but you know it's a very helpful studio i've never in 20 years seen somebody go well i'm not going to give you any advice on level design because you're making a first person shooter and i'm making a first person shooter it's, it's yeah, just ridiculous it, let me let me throw in let me throw in something else that that speaks to the agent side of it okay jay's an agent i'm an agent okay there are people out there who don't know Jay or I, but have a preconception about <clears throat> agents in general as people that don't add a lot of value to the process. You know what I mean? They're just like introducing people and then that's it, you know, and they don't really do anything much more than that. That's a Hollywood carryover guys and gals. Okay. <laughs> that's not the agents in our business. In fact, there's only a couple dozen of us in the world that do what we do, okay? 
and you know you can't survive in this business being that way right it's not about the handshake it's not about guarding the relationships our job is to transfer our relationships to you all right to help you build relationships of a similar quality that we have with particular buyers or whatever right and so it's not about secret knowledge secret handshakes any of that crap okay what what we do is we act as a force multiplier for you okay it, let me ask you this question just think about this for a second how early in a game development cycle do you want to find out that your game has no legs that it's not going anywhere do you want to work on it for a year before you find that out do you want to work on it for two years do you want to get it fully finished and then find out it it only makes a buck 95 when you're you've pinned your hopes and dreams on you know the next big thing obviously one of the things you have to understand is talent is and that's what all game developers their talent okay is that buyers don't want to offend talent some buyers are better than others at giving you the straight story but some buyers won't ever say no no they'll give you a lot of prolonged maybes because <laughs> even though they don't want this game the next game you bring them might be the next command and conquer so they don't want to do anything to alienate you so the relationship between a buyer and talent okay is one of long-term courtship in both directions right now enter an agent what is an agent about an agent is about efficiency right you 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 have spent your life building a network of buyers and and teams that you work with and they respect you and all of that okay and so what happens is when i have a conversation with a buyer i don't have a conversation with a buyer about one team i have a conversation with a buyer about everything that I've got at that instant in time and everything he potentially needs at that instant in time. Okay. And then we look for fits, right? So he's going to tell me without any worry at all about offending one of my clients, because that's my job is to manage my client's expectations. He's like, nope, don't want that. Nope, that's not interesting because XYZ, da da da. Oh, this one let me see the next thing on this one you know what i mean so if you are at early demo stage and we can figure out out of the 40 possible publishers that are appropriate for your title 35 of them tell us no at that point okay we don't need to see anything more what would you like to do? Would you like to work on that demo for another six months, pour more money in it in the hopes that one of those last five is going to break your way? Or do you want to table that for another time? Because, hey, games have more than one life. They're like cats. <laughs> All right. There's a lot of guys with a lot of demos that resurface again later on because the time wasn't right for it then. 
but then it comes around again because you've thought of something new or fresh or whatever and you retool it okay but it's better to get on to the next thing right and so it's about that efficiency and the other thing that's important about having stuff in circulation oip okay every team that i work with i require them to have oip in circulation Right. And, and I'm not saying my pure art outsourcing teams, but I'm talking about the game developers. What's OIP? Oh, original original intellectual property. Okay. All right. I was so going to say original IP, that, that really doesn't yeah. answer the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A game that you are pitching, your game idea. Now, why is that? Because if you're just sitting there saying, hey, you know, we can, we're a floor wax and a dessert topping. We can do whatever you need, Right reference to old SNL episode, if you want to look it up, uh, new shimmer is the product, but, <laughs> um, but you know, if you're just saying that we're this incredible work for hire studio. Oh, okay. was a Chevy chase one. Yeah, it was. Okay. Um, <laughs> not uh, to derail. <laughs> no problem. Not none taken. Um, so if you're just doing that, then people don't really know where you fit or they really don't see anything in the best possible light. And if you get an RFP in, you've always only got two weeks, maybe three weeks to do a response to that. And you're usually always busy doing other stuff, you know, when you're doing it. So does that showcase your studio in the best possible light? No, it doesn't. Yeah. What's okay. an RFP? Uh, oh, request for proposal. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Dropping knowledge, but yeah, good. That's all right. It's all good. You know, you don't have time to prepare your your studio in the best possible light in an RFP. So, but OIP is something you've had time to develop at your leisure. You've had time to polish what you want, your materials that you want to show. It should showcase your studio in the best possible light. So, when that OIP is in circulation, it's not. It's doing the work of multiple things it's not just about placing that game it's about raising awareness of your studio and what your capabilities are okay it's about keeping you top of mind so that when somebody has a need they think of you again you know because a lot of times when i send a pitch out i i i might get a no but i want those buyers to say okay i don't want this game but you know i just got the transformers license and i I bet these guys could do something cool with that. You know, do they want to make a proposal for me? Sure, we'll do that. You know, and and so that's what you got to be. You got to be in circ and you got to be in circ with things fresh. And you don't want to flog a thing forever. Okay? Unless it's really something that people haven't paid attention to and should pay attention to. But you have you to be careful about that. Because yeah. 90% of developers will have that mentality well, of people need know. to be paying attention to this and they're not. Yeah. Well, you, let me finish my example, okay? <laughs> An example is the Warlords franchise, okay? Puzzle Quest is not an exact thing of Warlords. Warlords itself was a $40 million franchise, okay? And I'm still pitching a new Warlords game. And I've been pitching a new Warlords game for like three years. Now, the reason I won't let this go is because it's a proven franchise from before. We got sidetracked off of it because of what happened with Puzzle Quest and everything that we've done with Puzzle Quest, none of which I would give up, 
But now I have a window to make another Warlords, and I want to make that Warlords because I got freaking hundreds and thousands of people that ask us every year, when are you going to do it? I want you to make that. You know, when are you going to do it? So that's what I mean when I say something you shouldn't let go of. If it's an original game, it doesn't have a history, it doesn't have a franchise, any of that stuff, and, you're, and, and you put it out there, and it's not getting traction, all right? Going back to five different trade shows over a year and a half period to show the same game, you're, 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 you're wasting money on yourself, okay? You're much better off either take it the rest of the way. Don't worry about publishers. If you're going to fund it all the way to the end, fine. Go all the way to the end and do your distribution deal. You know what I mean? But if you're trying to work with OPM, which are other people's money, I'm, I believe it's, you know, publishers are way more effective when they have skin in the game. You get better deal terms when there's a distribution deal in terms of your percentages. But most publishers do a much better job when they've got money in the game. You know? So I like to get their money in the game co-invested with you as early in the process as possible. Which is, you know, a, a wonderful segue into our next question. Okay. What are the major deal structures that that you're seeing now between, you know, developers and publishers to get to bring games to market? Well, I mean, the biggest thing that's new, okay, is the movement towards, and it's not terribly new. I think the games as a service side is. Um, Free-to-play has been around for a while now, okay? And it's become a dominant business model and it's becoming increasingly dominant on console as well. You're gonna see way more free-to-play PC console titles going forward and for the premium ones you're going to see way more games as a service because there's a recognition that once you have an audience it's much better and more lucrative to keep that audience happy and engaged over a longer term than continually trying to acquire new audience members you know i mean just take the free-to-play example um, if you are trying to work mobile free-to-play and do, you know, paid UA, paid user acquisition, you're going up against King and Supercell and guys like that, and they drive it up through the roof. They drive it up, you know, $8 a user for signups and stuff like that, which is, a, you know, that's like manufacturing console units. You know, in terms of upfront costs with no possible, no assurance that you're ever going to get your money back. Yeah, you're not going to see that money back. <laughs> you know, right? So, um, so you either have to have organic users, right? People that have, you're not paying for them. They're getting it through social media influencers, uh, featuring in the store, whatever. I mean, the, the consoles at this point are a good source of organic users you know, for free to play games on console. But, and Android's a good source, okay, as well. Um, but, you know, I think the implications are that people cannot look at, 
game development as a finite endpoint anymore. Okay. If you're going to design games as a service or you're going to design free to play games, you have to think about the extensibility of that game from the very beginning of your design process. You know, it's difficult to take a premium design and try and convert it to free to play. Right. So we're going to see more types of monetization coming in. Uh, I think you'll see subscription models. You'll see more paid ad models. You'll see, you know, a lot of new things other than gotcha IP systems, you know, or IAP systems. Gotcha is, um, for those, I guess I got to go back and define some things. Gotcha is a Japanese term. It comes from gachapon. Gachapon are the toy machines with the claws. And in Japan, what they did is they put all these cute little, you know, Pokemon and other characters in these plastic balls that are very slick, you know, and people would just put 100 yen after 100 yen, trying to get the claw drop, trying to get the characters that they wanted to collect them all. All right. And, you know, half the time they didn't get anything and other times they, you know, got some other character and... So it's an expensive way to acquire a collection. And that's where gotcha comes from. And gotcha mechanics in, in game design, okay, are still viable mechanics. I mean, loot boxes are an example of gotcha. They're viable mechanics, but there has been an increasing pushback against them, right? Some people have, you know, Belgium and other places have said, gambling, it's gambling. You know, well, there's a lot of law and precedent that says it's not gambling, but designers and everything are looking for alternative ways of monetizing games that downplay the loot box systems as much, you know, but puzzles and empires and stuff like that are still very dependent on that kind of thing. Right. So, <clears throat> I know I'm kind of going around the bend to get to your answer, but it's an important bend to go around. If you are a game development studio at this point who has grown up thinking about games in a finite way, okay, even let's talk about a narrative game, you know, it's a storyline and characters important and, you know, we're, we're doing this you know, experience that it has a, a a beginning and a middle and an end. The market for those kinds of games isn't going to go away, but it's a much smaller market than games that are designed to continue indefinitely for the people that love them and want to play them. You know, I've got games that uh, have been in market for six and seven years and the the last month's revenues were the highest month ever okay and that's the opportunity that's presented by free-to-play ongoing live ops and games as a service monetization you know I'll, I'll be fanboy for a second i didn't need fallout 76 okay i mean i bought it all right. 
and I've played it some, but you could have taken Fallout 4 and done those, you know, they did four content drops, right? In the year post-release. Now that's what most people think of as games as a service, okay? I gotta have DLC, I gotta have four pieces of DLC, two to four after the game's released and I plan that way. Well, I'm saying that games as a service is gonna be more than that. I'm saying there's an audience like me out there for the games they love that I would gladly pay $200 a year, all right? $20 a month, $25 a month ongoing if somebody kept my Fallout 4 world refreshed with new stuff coming all the time they could have my money for as long as i would spend it you know so i think that's the change that's happening is you have to look at your designs for extensibility and you know it used to be that <clears throat> if you did a game you you maybe did some planning for the sequel but the sequel was always dependent on the success of the game, okay? And, but people would have to wait a long time for that sequel, right? Now it's, and you're gonna lose some people from one to the next, you know? They, they, they've moved on to something else. Now the idea is you get them and you keep them and you keep them fed and you keep them happy and you give them a chance to work together. Now. That last piece is another big piece, which is the social systems, okay? It's absolutely about the community around each one of these games. You have to give them the means to interact with one another, not just player versus player, but collaboratively and cooperatively, you know? There's way too few co-op games out there. And people love them. So I think you're going to see a lot more co-op. In terms of the deal structures, to get the publishers to sign on with you, if you don't have a background in live ops and a background in community service, but your game does have that need, and it should, be going down that path my suggestion to you is partner early and increase the value of your package see every studio you know Clint Eastwood one of my favorite sayings is from Clint Eastwood on Heartbreak Ridge he says a man's got to know his limitations okay and a game studio has got to know their limitations as well if the market says to be successful, you got to have this level of everything. And you look at yourself honestly and you say, you know, we're pretty good programmers. We're pretty good at this. We don't have the networking piece down. We don't have live ops and community management down. Okay. But these are things we can build later if we get funding. Well, you can do that if you get funding maybe okay but you're putting a barrier in your own way because the publisher can see those gaps too all right and they're either going to say this is my problem to solve 
and I need to solve it before I even consider funding this thing. Or you can be proactive. You can do the research. You can make your partnering deals with other studios that fill in those gaps. And you don't even have to spend money to do it, okay? Let's say you said, uh, oh, I, I need to have the live ops piece, right? I need to have the community service piece. I need to have BIBA systems, business intelligence, business analysis, back-end systems for my free-to-play game. I don't have that experience. Don't go build it. Call me. I'll say, here's my guy's octagon. We partner up, okay? So your proposal, or call Jay if he's got somebody, you know, but I mean, I'm talking any gap, right? And your proposal then becomes stronger and more actionable by a publisher because they look at it and they say, oh, okay, oh, they're working with this guy for the art. I love their art. Oh, they've got, these guys are going to do the, 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 the live ops piece. I love what they did for XYZ. Make yourself more attractive by association and collaboration. You know, play to your strengths and enhance your weaknesses by partner or, you know, overcome your weaknesses by partnering. Make sense? And, and, and given everything that we've talked about, you know, and how specialized studios are, are becoming now, factoring that in with how easy it <clears throat> is to find and collaborate with other, you know, successful studios, you know, there's no sense in not doing it. I mean, there are very, very few games publisher level games obviously like indie self-publishing games are a little different but there's still a lot of collaboration in there you know, virtually no game is made by one studio now you know even if it's somebody else doing localization somebody else doing a port you know someone else doing you know testing there's a lot of different areas that are involved and like ed said you know you can bring a lot of you know, strength and justification to your proposal, whether it's an RFP or, you know, something original. And it also shows that you're mature enough to understand you don't have all the skills, which is important because, you know, when you get some of these RFPs and, and these pitches from developers, they're like, yeah, we can do all of this. And it's like, well, how is the last, you know, in that purchase run that you've done? Well, we haven't really done that before but we can do it there's there's billion dollar companies that say that and they can't do it i mean look at ea and battlefront yeah look at you mentioned porting that's a great topic to to dive in a little bit on okay there are studios that do pc only because they live in a geography we going back to the geography thing where it's difficult to get dev kits for the console all right I've you know, have kids before, <laughs> you know, and, and so what you do, but you, what you have to understand is from a publisher perspective, more SKUs helps them mitigate their risk and make a better model to actually take on a game. Right? So if you partner up with a porting house with your, you know, you, you just got to have a PC demo. But you have I did the porting house identified. The porting house has built their bids in to what it would take to do the final ports on, you know, this project, right? Whatever it is. Now you're pitching a PC console project, which not only opens you up to more publishers that you can pitch to, it makes them and easier for them to get their model because 
Maybe it costs 35,000, 50,000 a platform to get the port done. But you know, the numbers that you can get back from that makes it way worthwhile and it makes it less risk for the PC SKU as well. And we you just know, saw so, this week, Dead Cells did two, has done 2 million units on Switch alone. Yeah. And that was a port. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, if you don't, you don't have to solve these problems yourself. Sometimes it's easier, you know, because at the end of the day, like you bring a porting house on, let's say you were that guy, okay? You're still getting the, you're the creator of the title. You still got royalties. Even if you give some of your royalties to the porting house, okay? You're still going to come out way ahead, you know, if you work with a third party as opposed to trying to build from ground zero and go through those issues, you know? And you're more likely to get placed in the first place. Mm -hmm. So, so it's all about business realities, folks. You got to be honest with yourself, understand what you're good at, and you know, understand how to find the right people to um, solve the things that you're not so good at. So, yeah, right, and we're... transparency with the publisher. Can I throw in one thing? Yeah, you... absolutely. Well, I mean, I was before just going to say that we we are closing in on end time. So, if you've got a question for Ed. Toss it up in chat right now. Let us know. Go ahead. Yeah. While while you're doing that, while you're tossing it up, uh, um, publishers relationships. All right. The other thing, an agent. What my philosophy as an agent is this: my integrity is to the project. Okay. In other words, my loyalty is to the project. I have integrity in all respects, but my loyalty is to the project. So, in other words. What does everybody want? The developer, the publisher, me, we all want a successful project, right? Because that also leads to repeat business. But so the gist of it is if the publisher's in the wrong, if they're creating a problem, you know what I mean? Like they're not getting the approvals fast enough, they're late on their payments, whatever, they're doing something to jeopardize the thing, I'm gonna be on the publisher. If my developer's doing something wrong, I'm going to be on the developer to make sure he does it right. Okay. Because at the end of the day, the project is the most important thing. All right. And that's where everybody's reputation flows from. Now, as a developer, you may have heard, and there may be, it's through fear, trepidation, whatever. If you're afraid of your publisher, you're, you're approaching it the wrong way. Okay. Yes. I understand. He controls the money. And, and has your life in the palm of his hand, okay? But if you want him to take care of you, you gotta take care of him. And the way you take care of him is, if there's an issue, a problem that needs to be solved, you flag it. As soon as you know about it, you raise your hand. You say, hey, didn't anticipate this. This is happening, you know? Uh, any insight into how we might be able to address it, whether, you know, there's a problem with a Unity plugin or whatever, you know, like what well, you have to remember this, it's in the publisher's best interest to help you as much as they can. They want the project out. So they're on, you're on the same team. That's all I wanted to say. Okay. So, and Chocolate Rain had a question and I chimed in, but I want to get your thoughts on it too. It says, why use a porting house when the engines like Unity and Unreal do all the work for you? No, they don't. They don't even come close to doing all the work for you. I'll tell you what, you just take the straight output and you throw it into submission and see what happens. 
okay i'm especially on switch all right i'm going through unity switch stuff right now with a high definition pipeline curl your hair so so you know you, you just because it says that something supports it you still have to manage all the trc's you have to go through all the process at each one of the publishers the engine does not do that for you okay and if you're not an approved developer on those platforms don't have the dev kits how are you going to do it anyway you know you can't test it. You can't change, you know, a lot of the, the nuances that come in the controls, menus. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it that, you know, it just doesn't. Yes, you can push a button and it will work. It doesn't mean it'll be approved and or fun. Right. Right. You know, you, you find a lot of things once you go into submission where you got to go back into the code and make some adjustments to fix frame rate or do different things because you didn't anticipate, you know, you can't anticipate everything. So having a good porting house to back you up, unless you're doing all the platforms, native development yourself is really important. It's amazing how much time it will save you. I mean, I remember going back when we did a lot of stuff on DS and, and GBA and all these handheld Nintendo devices back in the day, how long a simple lot check kick out will take, even if it's something very small, you have to go back, hold through the process again. Just having someone who knows that process inside and out is a huge benefit in terms of time and everything else. Well, and, and don't, don't, listen you don't want to get into resubmissions and all that that goes with it because not only is there expense associated with that your publisher is concerned about his marketing spend mm -hmm. okay he's got all his marketing spend tied to a sim simultaneous release he's got all his ads queued up he's already spent the money if you miss dates you're gonna he's gonna lose more money on all the promo stuff he did than you can imagine you know because usually there's a lot of money spent on marketing these games. You know, sometimes as much or more than the budget. So you don't want to be in that position because you will also burn a publisher relationship that way too. Well, you could end up costing yourself money too if all that has to get recouped. And, yeah. you know, oh, yeah. screwed up. And now they have to go spend a whole bunch to do another launch three months later. You just put yourself further behind the eight ball in terms of actually getting royalties paid back on all that stuff true true so ed uh, you know unless we've got more questions coming in this is I, I love the fact that we finally got you on the show and and i want to have you back you know post e3 and, and conference season and, and all of that sort of stuff um you will be at e3 I'll be uh, you at E3. You're holding up court in the JW lobby, I'm assuming? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. JW Marriott. If, yeah. if you're going to E3 and you want to meet publishers and do business, stay off the show floor. Nobody's there. <laughs> go, go to the JW Marriott, and, and that's where everyone will be. You know, it's, it's just... Sitting at the bar. E3. 
what E3 has become. Yeah, and they have a really deep bar, too. That's the thing. It's, just don't try to get a, a coffee there first thing in the morning at that Starbucks. Just, you'll be in line for an hour and a half. Um, there's one There's one out on LA Live that you can get in easier. Can Going back to, you know, the old men in the room scenario, I yeah. am so happy LA Live exists now because we used to come out of E3 and unless you were going to walk across the street and eat at the Palm, there was nothing to do, nothing around the LA Convention Center post-show entertaining networking type thing. Oh, you know what my favorite thing to do was? It was simple. Because it was always the Lakers were in it, right? You know? Yep. So so all these people would be standing in their Laker jerseys, you know, ready to go. Because remember, they were rioting down there and stuff after the games. So I'd be coming out of E3. I'd be walking back to my hotel at the Fig, you know? And I am not a sports fan, folks. I don't follow sports <laughs> at all. I don't care. All right? So... I'd walk past these people, about every fourth or fifth person, just enough distance to where you're separated from the guy you did it before. And you, you look at him and you go, who's playing? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they just look at you like you're from the moon. It's so awesome. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, I mean, Ed, thank you so much. I, I, I greatly welcome, appreciate it, and, and I love getting to hang out and, and, and talk about all of this stuff with you. And we will have you, you back on. In any parting knowledge you want to throw out there? Tell the truth. Be real. Be genuine. Care about people. Trust in God. Follow your dreams. You know? And... and it's a good play and don't listen to the people who say I my favorite thing also is all the people who go oh you work in the game industry that's got to be fun I've got you an know? idea for a game like they have this concept where we sit around and play games all day long and we don't do anything else <laughs> everybody in this business works like a madman okay I'm up every day here in Hawaii at 3 a.m. dealing with Europe Okay, and and I usually put in about a 12-hour day. That's my normal day. Okay, so uh, everybody I know that's in a development studio works very, very hard. They're very dedicated. And if you want to be part of that community and can, can show an equivalent level of dedication, it's a great bunch of people to work with. You know, it really is. And it, and you'll really you'll find out who the dirt bags are. Hey, and thanks for all, the sub, we, Shrimp Mania. Thank you, Shrimp. <laughs> we and we and we all once we identify the dirt bags, we just put them off in a corner somewhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we don't work with them, but most people are great. I want to share a tweet along the lines that I saw, you know, just the other day. And somebody made the comment to to Patrick Klipek, who's one of the senior guys over at um, at Vice.com, and he, he writes for Waypoint and others. When someone said, "Oh, but you know, it, it's a job that you do because you love the hobby," and he goes, "No, it's a job that I do because I have a set of skills that pays my mortgage, puts food on the table. It stopped being my hobby when it became a career." And treating something fun sounding, treating fun sounding jobs as not real is how someone like me ends up with thousands of hours of unpaid overtime. All right. Yes. <laughs> hey, thanks this, for the follow. Oh, thanks for the it, host. Is that what that is? It, 
is a wonderful industry to work on and we do love working in it but you know i told uh, I, I told a kid the other day i mean and we have a lot of renters around here where where we live and I ran into a kid who's 18 years old and he's actually you know he said he wanted to get into games and of course my son had already told him what i do and he's in one of the you know good game programs here in, in the state and he was asking about the industry and he goes Sir, do you make good money and i'm like no you're not gonna make good money i mean you, you, average you know if i'm playing the percentages no you're not you know you're gonna work long hours you're gonna get paid enough to you know get by and on occasion you'll have more than that until you build up and get everything but if you don't absolutely love it don't do this you know this is very much a a passion product but it doesn't mean at the same time that all we do is you know sit around and play Fortnite and, and apex all, all day long because you know you don't you still have to do because <laughs> you don't you still <laughs> yeah, have to do a lot don't. of real work <laughs> Because because we get tired of the kids beating our ass. That's why. Exactly. <laughs> that's why we play things like Apex and, and Overwatch instead of Fortnite. Because I can't build shit fast enough. Oh, that was a raid. We that's we got a... raided by Whitlock with a party of seventeen. Thanks for the hey, raid, dude. Thank you, Whitlock. Uh, <laughs> it is well. I mean, we. I, I feel bad like cutting everything off now that we just got raided. So, um, l- let me let's go back to to Fallout Four and let's talk about some like fun stuff for, for a second here, Ed. Sure. Have you used the Sim Settlements mod in Fallout Four? Um, I think I had it installed for a little bit, but I didn't get into it. This is the one where. You're, they 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 start to have lives of their own and do the yes. different things, right? Yeah, I didn't get. I, I start. I had that and a few other things going at the same time, and I started having issues. Before I got my monster, I have a monster now. I have an Alienware R51 with 18 i9 quad, you know, cores and all this crap, and <laughs> you know, you're launching rockets over there, basically. Yeah, exactly. Nuclear release codes are figured out on my on my computer but but yeah no I, I i think i had it up for a little bit and then i had a bunch of mods in and i had to strip everything out and it's not one that i put back on i highly suggest it it extended yeah. the life of that game for me by months i mean it is absolutely so cool how you can go in and basically like sim city your little whatever those things are called camps or, or a freak or so. settlements settlements yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, you know, so fun to be able to do that. And you go back and things are better. And you have to be careful. I mean, you're fine with that big one, with that, with your system. But if you don't have a good system, you'll come back and there'll be so much shit that's built that just like the whole game crashes immediately. Uh, but it's, it's a really fun one. All right. And so we actually got a new question here. What is the standard yeah. marketing plan for a game? Uh, there's not a standard chocolate No. Brain. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is one of those that your marketing plan is going to come down to the genre your your target demographic your uh platform that you're releasing on and it's where we always recommend to everyone get a pr and marketing firm to help you with this because it's not something that you can just go oh i'm gonna get a bunch of followers on twitter and 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 everybody about my game yeah and and on top of that yeah i mean the key thing is don't try and be a marketing company and a game development studio. It's not your forte. 
you know even with the even with the guys that got big they very often went outside you know what i mean for the marketing expertise you know and even even the big publishers a lot of them use external agencies to do their marketing and stuff so yeah there is no one size fit all plan i will give a shout out to uh, a friend of jay's and mine who's done a lot of good stuff over the years mario kroll yeah. uh at uber strategist uh he's based in research triangle park uh, mario's mario a great moved, guy i moved out yeah yeah he's a he's a good guy and and he's developer friendly you know a lot a lot of the uh larger marketing firms when they think of the game space they think of working with an activision level budget and all this other junk uh, so they they're not developer friendly you can't walk in there with a with an indie game and say how do i get my thing noticed mario will work with you yeah i just posted mario's website in the chat it's um uberstrategist.com yeah yeah mario mario's a great guy the guys at um vicarious pr um, he's down in Georgia, uh, another good group. There's a lot of really talented people. And it gets back to, you know, knowing what you're good at and, and knowing what you're not good at and, and finding the people to do it correctly. Um, I forget, what's um, Agent Tinsley's first name? I'm completely spacing on it. Uh, cannot think. Uh, but she, I mean, she's been independent for years. She does all the, the PR and marketing for uh, Devolver and, and all of all of that stuff. Um, all right, so Nightwolf, is it possible to code a marketing AI bot to auto post for social medias and websites related to the game genre? You actually don't even have to code an AI bot. There are multiple um, sites and tools that you can use like, you know, Buffer, Crowdfire. Uh, there's a new one that I'm testing out a little bit right now called Growth Hackers Lab. There's a lot of social media tools that you can use to simplify, you know, your own life week to week. You can queue up things. Um, Crowdfire has an app that lets you, you put in some RSS feeds and you can flip through and share stuff pretty easily. Um, you don't necessarily have to go and, and code on AI bot. You know, look into what's, don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. Look into what's already there. <laughs> All right, and then Chocolate Rain says, what is the biggest mistake you ever made? Hmm. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, hmm. Okay. I'm sure I've made several, but I don't know that there's a biggest one I've ever made. Uh, on, I mean, all right, so honestly, I will say not getting out of a toxic office place and starting my own studio, starting my own company sooner. I should have, I should have started this company three years before I did it. Uh, and the, and it goes back to the whole crunch passion quality of, of life thing. One of the reasons that I'm so adamant and so vocal about not, you know, working yourself to death. I mean, you have to work hard, but not, you know, sacrificing your family and your health for it is because I did that. 
and you know I don't want to see other people do it again so you know that's one of the ones that I would write up there it's just not doing my own thing sooner I, I have a similar thing I would add which is you know you mentioned toxic work environment you mentioned other things there have been in my dealings with investors and other people over the years certain situations which were toxic okay and you know my ongoing reaction to them could have been to be way more skeptical not quite as trusting all of those things and some people would say that'd be the smart thing to do all right but i live in hawaii and the concept in hawaii is called pono and being pono is doing the right thing all right and you realize that if you're doing the right thing and somebody else isn't you can't control them but you don't have to change who you are just do the right thing you know what i mean and extricate yourself from that situation once you figure it out but you know i i, I guess i've made mistakes yeah I, i'll tell you one Here's a who shall remain nameless. Okay. I had a relationship with a publisher and we had cut a deal and there were royalties involved and the royalties uh, hadn't been reported yet, but they were actually bigger than what he anticipated. Okay. And gave me a dog and pony story about how he was going to lose his job over cutting the deal a certain way and this and that and the other okay and I ended up letting him renegotiate a little bit and without seeing the benefit of that royalty report that was a big mistake on my part I should have seen that report and then had the conversation in context Okay, but we had done a lot of business together and I kind of got taken advantage of there. All right. And I oh, found he was out get fired for having too much royalties to to going out to us. Ah, got it. For the deal he cut with me. Okay. And so anyway, long story short, person will remain nameless. In the in hindsight, I should have demanded to see everything before I agreed to make any changes but I didn't because I had a long standing working relationship with him I took certain things at face value and then I found out later on I was a little bit sold a bill of goods you know but that's my big mistake in the end karma came around I'm, I'm doing okay that, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, this is a very big industry, but, you know, like we've alluded to and then flat out said several times, it's also a very small industry. You know, people know everyone. And if you do that and you burn a bridge in this industry, it, it, it's going to haunt you for years. I mean, it's doing the right thing. In some cases, it's going to cost you money in the short term, but it's it's going to be way better off in the end. Yeah, you remember when your mother told you that you might get away with it now, but sooner or later I'm going to find out? That's the way it is. <laughs>
we'll call funny. your mom. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, I've got to go get ready to roll out and and, and pick up a little one from school. So uh, that's thank you again, Ed. This is awesome. You're most it. welcome, brother. We shall do it again. If you need to find archived episodes of the show, you can go to indiegame.business, or you can go, and we've got a podcast now that's linked in there, and we're on Apple, we're on Google, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, all all the majors. Everything. Listen on your phone. We're we're everywhere. Um, Yeah. And and so reach out to us. You can also find us on Discord. Are you also running in 2020? In 2020? Everybody else is. I just, well, just asking. The last you know. thing I want to do is deal with a bunch of people <laughs> up there. I'll, t- I'll, I'll take publishers and, and, you know, all kinds of Amen, brother. crazy Amen. other stuff all day long yeah. versus dealing with, with that funny. mess. But, yeah. Yep, Join yep. us. We'll, we'll be back next week with, with more knowledge to drop on everybody. Yeah. Make yep. sure and follow, subscribe, See all that good stuff. Later. Thanks for listening to Indie Game Business. You can learn more about the show and our online business networking events at indiegame.business.